The next section, faithfulness and looking for the king and the kingdom. Chapter 17, verses 11 through chapter 18, verse 30. In this section, Jesus develops more of what the kingdom of Yahweh is like, what it means to enter it, and what it means to live in it. Here he continues to shatter preconceived ideas of the kingdom of Yahweh and when and how it will come. So now he continues deeper into what does it mean to truly be a part of the kingdom of God. Chapter 17, verse 11. Now on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was entering a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to be priests. And as they went along, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell with his face to the ground and at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to turn back and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to the man, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. So the point he is making is these ten lepers come to him. He heals them all. And they walk away. Now notice that they aren't walked away and they don't, they don't get cleansed until they walk away. He tells them to go to the priests to have them inspected. Now remember, according to Levitical law, the priests actually have no ability to heal you when you have skin diseases of any kind. What they can do is inspect you. They know how to inspect for a contagious versus a non-contagious skin disease. So when you believe that your skin, you have a skin disease, you go to them and they determine whether you're contagious or not and whether you can continue to live in the, the community of God or you have to be outcasted. If you believe that if, if you are declared a contagious, and their job is to return you back to the community. It's not that they're and allow it to infiltrate their body and eat them away, eat away at everybody else. But when you reap them, come to them. When he sends them away and says, go and get inspected, that's when they become healed. That's not how he does it all the time with people with skin disease, but on this occasion he did. When they step out in faith and say, I will go to the priest, they're healed. Only one of them turns back, and only one of them thanks him. And the point that Jesus is making is, there are many of you who have come to me for healing. And you've believed that I have the power to heal. But once you got your healing, there's no relationship. You've gotten what you wanted, and now you leave. And we know that. Most of us have no relationships with our doctors. We go there to get healed, and then we leave. But we're not calling the doctor up every day and saying, hey, what are you doing? Want to hang out? Now, that might be true with some, but you know, most of the time when it comes to your lawyer or your doctor or your pediatrician or your whatever, you're not hanging out with them on a regular basis. And then, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's just an example. You came for healing, you got what you wanted, and you walk away. And Jesus is saying, this is not how the kingdom of God works. We've talked about what it means to get into the kingdom of God. We've talked about why the kingdom of God is worth it more than the kingdom of humans. But now the question is, what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? And what it means to be in the kingdom of God is, you don't come for healing, you come to have a relationship. And this man turns around, he comes back, and he praises God. He devotes himself to God. He wants to know God. He wants to follow God. And that's a true kingdom member. And it's the foreigner. And this is the point that Jesus continues to make. The people who've had so little 
and known so little about God are the ones who are going to appreciate it and be far more committed than the people who have grown up with this. And this is a challenge because in a way, my children are this, the, the Jews. They're going to grow up in the Christian church, in the Christian faith, in the Christian school their entire life. And the question is, how do I help them become a Peter and a John and not a Pharisee? Because I can't make them a Samaritan. They're going to know all this stuff. And I don't exactly know the answer, but I'm working on it. That's the point he's making. There's a danger to being in this for a very long time and taking it for granted. Right? We often say you don't appreciate how much, what you have until you lost it. Verse 20. Now at one point the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming. So he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for indeed the kingdom of God is in your midst. They want, they, they, they want to know the, what's the sign that we should be looking for. When is the kingdom of God coming? Give us the scientific answers. And Jesus' response is, it's already here. The prophets have made it very clear what the kingdom of God looks like. He'll later say, if you knew the Father, you would know me. It's already here. It's not an event where something physical comes down in the way that you think of it. It's not a time that you put on your calendar. It's not reading the stars correctly. It's a relationship with God. Yes, it's an event that Christ came down in his incarnation. Yes, it will be an event when he comes a second time. But it's not about this giant city coming down exactly. It's about people. It's about a relationship. And the point is I'm here. I'm the relationship. I'm the being. Verse 22, Then he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Then the people will say to you, Look, there he is, or look, here he is. Do not go out and chase after them. For just like lightning flashes and the lights of the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by generations, just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying is that you want this sign and that sign. And this is a warning to Christians too. Oh, when the temple gets rebuilt in Jerusalem, that's when Jesus is coming back again. No, 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 no. The moment that Christ returns is like the time that he came the first time. There will be things where God will be doing things, but there will be no like fireworks in the sky announcing Jesus is here. It'll come when you least expect it, like a lightning strike. One moment's here, and the next moment's over here. And it will come when you least expect it. And what Jesus is saying is, it will come. And you will miss it. You will be so busy looking for signs. You will be so busy trying to keep score and make sure that you have what's right that you will miss the person who comes and is standing right before you. But before he comes, before the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, he must suffer. Once again, he mentions his death. Now this time he doesn't specifically say he's going to die, but he says, I will suffer. 
and I will be rejected by this generation. And now he makes it clear that I'm going to suffer at your hands. You're going to be the one who kills me. Just as it was in the days of Noah, the days of the Son of Man. And the point is, just as Noah preached for 120 years and not one person got on the boat with him beyond his family, so will be that Jesus will be here like Noah preaching, but greater than Noah. And he's the greater ark builder. And you will miss it. You will choose not to get on the ark. But if Jesus, and this is the point that Hebrews is making, if Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets and the priesthood and all that kind of stuff, and now we could add here, if Jesus is greater than Noah and the greater ark builder, then he brings greater blessings and a greater kingdom than the law and the prophets and the priesthood. But he also brings a greater judgment. When you ratchet up the object of the kingdom of God, then you ratchet up the blessings and you also ratchet up the judgment. Rejecting the law brought physical death. Rejecting Christ brings eternal death. Do not fear the one who can kill the body, the law. Fear the one who can kill the body and the spirit. The people were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and they were being given in marriage right up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, people were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on that day, Lot went out from Sodom and fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone who is on the roof with his goods in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, the person in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses life will preserve it. What he's saying here is, when those judgments came, the flood and Lot's city being destroyed, Son Gomorrah, people were living their life as if they were going to have another day. All they cared that they were investing in it. Now, that doesn't mean that you should stop eating and stop living your life as if there's going to be a tomorrow, because you're a horrible, bad person if you do. The point is that they were living as if the kingdom of God would never come. They were living as if the judgment would never come. They were living as if God would never return. And they were going on building their kingdom and living their life and investing in their thing with no regard that this is temporary and some other kingdom was going to come and replace it or judgment was going to hold them accountable. They were warned and they ignored it and lived their life like nothing was going to ever change. And as a result, everything did change. And he says to them, when you start seeing God, do not look back. Lot's wife did not die because she dis disobeyed God and looked back. It was because she looked back with longing at the thing that she was losing. Remember, nobody runs out of their house and looks back at the house because they think their house burning down looks cool. They look back at their house because they're mourning the loss of their investment. Emotional, memories, financial, whatever. And what Jesus is saying is when judgment day comes and the kingdom that you have invested in, the world, if it's that's true, begins to burn, then no one who looks back on that and longing or tries to continue to fix the kingdom as goes back to the roof and repairs it. When God is coming and destroying this world, the, the world as in the philosophy and the economics and the worldview of this world, 
and you're still trying to build up your politics again and recreate the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, or you're trying to rebuild your investments, you're not going to be part of that kingdom of God because you've shown where your heart really is. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two people in the, on one bed, and one will be taken, the other left. And there will be two women grinding grain together, and will be taken, the other one left. Then the disciples said to him, Where, Yahweh, he replied to them, Where the dead body is, there the vultures will gather. A lot of people interpret this passage as the rapture. Two people walking along the road, he looks over, one's that they even made a song about that, right? I don't think this is about the rapture. And I'm not alone in this, okay? In fact, you know the old famous Matthew Henry commentary? He doesn't take this about the rapture either. I know that's the one everybody goes down to. If Matthew Henry says it, then it must be true. Okay, I don't exactly believe that, but in this place we're in alignment. The context seems to point to the fact that the people who are taken away are taken away in judgment. Everything here is about judgment. The idea is more being swept away. Swept away in the flood, swept away in the fire. In fact, when they ask him where, he says to where the vultures are. The vultures are unclean animals that feed on the dead. We see this in the prophets where God judges Israel and the nations and then calls the vultures to feed on the dead of those who he has judged. In Revelation, Christ comes back and feeds the enemies of God, the kingdom of God, and says, birds and animals have your feed for the judgment is over with. The context points more to the people who are being taken away or the people taken away in judgment. In my opinion, we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to Revelation, but I believe what we think of as a rapture is actually a reverse rapture. I don't think that we're going to be taken off this planet. I think it's going to be the taking away of the non-believers. Because the whole point that you're going to see in Revelation is that God doesn't remove the believers from earth. God brings the dead believers that have gone before us back to earth, and Christ comes, and God comes to the earth. This is our eternal home. Leaving this earth is a temporary thing that happens in death. Revelation makes it very clear that the dead and the believers and Christ and God and the kingdom and heaven, kingdom of God and heaven, come down to earth and dwell with us. We're not being taken away. They're being taken away into weeping and gnashing of teeth, the last chapter of Revelation. And the context says where to where the vultures are. God created this planet for his people, his image. Why would he, punish, why would he reward us by taking the most ultimate gift away? Creation. You're like, oh my gosh, you just threw a theological grenade under my door and you're going to walk away now. Yes, but when we get to Revelation, we can cry, pry bar that thing open and deal and wallow in all you want because that's what we're going to talk about. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. 
And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. There was also a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but later on he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor have regard for people, yet because of this widow keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice, or in the end she will wear me out by her unending pleas. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus tells this parable of persistent prayer. And we've already seen a parable of him talking about the need to pray and be bold and persistent, this kind of stuff. But now he's actually emphasizing persistence to the point of annoyance. And the point that Jesus is making is that even unrighteous people will eventually give in due to constant persistence, then how much will Yahweh answer your prayers? That doesn't mean if you're just constantly persistent, you can manipulate God into getting what you want. Um, This parable is emphasizing the persistenceness. And the fact that God does want to give you justice. And God does want to answer your prayer. But part of it is also our willingness to express how much we trust Him. And the question is, do we trust God enough that we will persistently pursue Him in prayer? There are lots of things that we do. If we have a need for a good lawyer or a good doctor or, or a good school or something, we tend to get very persistent. We tend to do a lot of research. We call those people up a lot. We annoy them and that kind of stuff. And we do these things because we're determined to get what we want. And what Christ is saying is if you're willing to do this with the world, if you're willing to do this with other people when you really want something, then why don't we do this with God who's the only one who can actually give us what we need, give us the justice that we need, give us and want to actually give it to us. Or most of the world, it's your own work and your own persistence that may or may not get you what you want. With most of the world, it's annoying somebody or knowing the right person at the right place and constantly being there. But with God, it's about a good God who actually wants to do this for you and can do it for you. And so what God is saying is be persistent with him. Don't be persistent with the world. Not that he's saying, like, be lazy in the world and and not pursue things, but... What are you focusing on more, God or your own ability or their expertise or their power to get things done? And that's what God is saying here. In the same way, sometimes our persistence also shows how much that we desire it and how much we're willing to pursue him. It allows us to change our hearts as well. The more we pray for something, the more it's going to change us. Um, and the, this kind of a not completely totally on um, in connection, but I mentioned this before. If there's someone that you don't like and you're having a hard time forgive them, then pray for them. It's hard to hate somebody that you're constantly praying for, and in that sense, that prayer can change you over time. In the same way, your persistence prayer can connect you to God and strengthen your relationship with him, allow you to see the things that God is doing in your life, and then eventually when you see him answer your prayer, you will see that as well. And so this isn't persistence like the parable says to the point of annoyance. This is persistence in the sense of I believe that God is the one who can do it, 
and I want to pursue him, and I'm going to show my faith in him and the way that I pursue him. On a side note that this parable is not really talking about, there are some prayers that can only be answered through constant prayer. If you go through the Bible, you'll see all these different ways of how to pray. And what's interesting is that there are some times when we will not get what we want or we will not see God answer our prayer unless we are persistent. And it's not that God doesn't want to answer that prayer, but because there's a whole world out there and a whole bunch of factors and variables that we're not aware of, including spiritual warfare. And we see this back in Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, Daniel has this vision and he doesn't understand it. And so he prays. And he prays for 21 days. And God doesn't answer him. And finally, an angel or a son of God by the name of Gabriel shows up to him and says, The minute you started praying, I was sent to you. Now we know the angels can move faster than lightning and they move interdimensionally which means they can bypass our third dimension and move even faster. And yet it took him 21 days to get there. And he tells you, because the Son of God or the Elohim or the Prince or the Demon of Persia was resisting him. And somehow Daniel's prayers aided in that spiritual warfare. And so there are so many variables and factors of why we need to be persistent in prayer. And one of them is just to see God change us and grow our character as we're persistent to show God that we actually do trust him more than our own efforts in the world and, and, and that we believe that he can make this happen and not the world and the whole entire spiritual warfare that's out there that it may need people. And we're told later in the Bible that sometimes some prayers need multiple people praying for it because the more people that pray, the more it aids the spiritual warfare. And how all that works, I don't know. But we don't know how lightning works. We don't know what fire is. We don't know what electricity is, but we know how to use it. And that's the point here. God is teaching us how to use prayer, even though he's not teaching us exactly how it works necessarily all the time. And so he's telling you that there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen before this second coming of Christ. And there's going to be a lot of trials you're going to go through. And your greatest weapon and making the kingdom expand on earth as it is in heaven. Your greatest weapon in experiencing God and the, and, the, the, and the good things that God wants to offer you in this world of suffering and trials. And your greatest weapon in bringing the second coming of Jesus Christ is your prayer. And we may not know exactly how it works, but we know how to use it. And the question is, are we committed more to our prayer and our relationship with God or the power and the skills of the world in getting what we want done. And so this is the point that he's making. The question that Christ then asks is, when I do come back, which I will, will I find faith on the planet? Some scholars believe, and I tend, I'm open to this, but we'll never know, that the second coming of Jesus Christ is dependent upon our faith that there may not be a totally set time that God has in mind of when he's coming back, like in 2000 or whatever, but that our faith or lack of faith as the believers is determining how long he tarries, waits to come back, or how soon he comes. And there's lots of theories of like, oh, there's more faith, he waits longer, there's less faith, he comes sooner. I don't know. 
But there seems to be a connection with that as well, and that our prayer life and our faith can determine the second coming of Christ in some kind of way. Now, I don't have a lot to say on that, and there's a lot that I don't fully understand that, and I don't know exactly where I sit on that, but it is something to think about as you go through scriptures and encounter passages that are about prayer and the second coming of Christ. It goes on with a second parable. Verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who were confident that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. The tax collector, however, stood far off and would not even look up at to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. I tell you that this man went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus basically tells this parable specifically for the Pharisees who thought that they were righteous and they were better than everybody else. And then he actually uses their name or their their group, the title of their group, to emphasize this. Now, before he told a lot of parables, and he told about parables of like this person and that person, and this person was bad and they did these things, and the implication was, hint, 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 I'm talking about you Pharisees. Now he just straight up uses their names and says, yep, I'm talking about you. And he's made it very clear at this point that he does not approve of their practices. And after you've already told them it would be better for you to tie a stone around your neck and jump in the ocean than teach another day, I think it kind of is obvious that they're your target now. So he uses their names specifically, and he, he talks about the way they pray, which is not uncommon for them to pray this way. They were very arrogant. They were very prideful. There are historical records of them standing out in public and praying out loud so that everybody could hear them. And they would basically announce their goodness. And you always love this line like, I thank God that I'm not like an extortionist. Or something. It's like, well, at least I'm not a murderer and I'm not a person who genocide millions of people. And you're like, well, yeah. But it's as if like that's the measure to measure yourself up. As long as I'm not murdering people and genociding people, then, hey, I'm a pretty decent person compared to those people. At least I'm not a drug cartel leader. It's, there's, there's this sense that's like that doesn't really get at what Christ is talking about, what God meant in the Bible, what it means to be godly, what it means to be righteous. And so he bragged, and then he lists the things that he does that are good, but notice all this is extor- external. Every single thing is external. He never deals with the thoughts that are in his head, whether they're good or bad. He doesn't deal with the devotion that he has for God. He doesn't even deal with anything on an emotional level or a relational level in connection to God. It's all external things that people can see. On the other hand, the tax collector sees who he really is. He understands what he really is. Remember, those who are forgiven of much, loves much. He does get that he is a sinner. He, he's trapped in this addiction of money and power, and he doesn't know how to get out of it, but he at least recognizes it's wrong and not good. And so he cries out to mercy for God. He's unwilling to even bring himself into the public. He's unwilling to speak these things out loud. He, he's hiding himself. And what God is saying is that's the true heart. That's the true heart that God wants, the humble heart. 
the one that sees themselves less than what they really are. It is much easier to build somebody's self-esteem up than to bring somebody's pride down if you're God. And this is the point that he's making. Remember, it, and even on an external sense, even in a morally behavioristic sense, it doesn't matter how close somebody looks like they are to God. It doesn't matter how good of a person they are. I think we used this example before, but if God is standing here and there's this really good behaviorist person standing really close to him and they look good and they've been at church and they've done great things and even at times in their life they were very committed to God at different times but they're faced away from him and they're moving the opposite direction of God and then there's another person that's much further away from God and they don't look as good they, they, they've got addictions that are very I mean we're all addicts but their addictions are more visible, they're more, they look more destructive, they're more obvious to people, they're rough around the edges, but they're faced towards God, and they're moving towards him. This is the Pharisee and the tax collector. It doesn't matter what you see behaviorist. It doesn't matter how devoted they look. It only matters what direction you're moving. Are you moving towards God into a relationship with him, or are you moving away from him? And this is the point that God is making. He does not care about their behavior. He only cares about their heart desire to know God. The Pharisee does not see a need for God. The tax collector does. And that's it. And remember, we talked about this lots of times. Behavior is important because those who love God and want to please him will have good behavior. But behavior is not something we can necessarily get on our own works or our own efforts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit transforming us, which is only possible if you're pursuing God and your relationship with him. And some people have a lot more public, visible work that needs to be done than other people. We all have a lot of work to be done. Some people just wear their remodeling project more outwardly than inwardly. The question is, how are you oriented? Are you oriented towards Christ? Or are you oriented towards your own will or the things of the world? And that's the point that God is making. In all the context of the second coming of Jesus Christ, this is what he's talking about. Is God the primary focus that you have in your life? Is he the primary thing that you believe that will fix your life, make your life right, get the things that you need done in your life done the right way? Or is it the world? Are you looking to yourself and your, how you look before other people as the measure of your righteousness? Or are you looking to who you are in Christ and how you're connected to him and how much you need him? Because when the Son of Man comes back a second time, what he's going to be focusing on, who belongs and who does not, are these things. Not behavior, not necessarily even how much you've impacted people's lives and how much you've gotten done. But whether your heart pursued Christ above all things, persistently and continuously, and even if you messed up, is a repentance. Is a repentance. Verse 15. Now people were even bringing their babies to him for him to touch. But when the disciples saw it, they began to scold those who brought them. But Jesus called for the children, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not try to stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
I tell you the truth, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Now children were often seen as an annoyance in the ancient world, in the Roman, the Greco-Roman world. And the Jews have adopted this way of thinking. And so children were the things of women to take care of, and, and, and fathers. And so a father, now a Roman father, had very little to do with his children in any kind of a way until he became of age, anywhere between 12 or 15 years old. And in the Jewish culture, the father would be very involved with his children, but not outside the home. Outside the home, children were to work in the fields or they were to be schooled or taught by the mothers. In the home, the father would be very much involved with them, but children were not recognized as worthy of being invested in, in a long-term sense until they were around 12 years old, when they became of age. And so they, they were seen as imperfect. They were seen as being in the way. They were seen as emotional, all the things that they really are. But they didn't, were not seen as valuable until they became of age. And they certainly had no role in the classroom with an external rabbi, a rabbi of apprenticeship. You would be in the home, and you'd be taught by your parents, and you'd be in the home working. But out in public, children were to be seen and not heard. They were to stay away. They were not to speak. They were only to listen and learn. In the home, they could be what they wanted. In the home, the mother and the father were involved. But outside the home, there was no place for them in public life especially with a rabbi. And so when they come to Jesus, something about him, the way that he's previously interacted with them, the things that he's already done, the persona that he's given off, they don't see him as someone who's unapproachable. They see him as someone who can be approached. Unlike the other rabbis, there's no way these children would have gone to other rabbis. They would have just glided right over them. And these children come. But... Remember, the, the, the disciples are a product of their culture and they're the product of their government and leadership, the Pharisees. And they think like their media. They think like the leadership and the culture. And they act like what they've been modeled to them. And so they immediately act like a Pharisee and they say, no, 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 you need to get away. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not like the world. I'm not like these leaders over here. I mean, how many times have I made it clear that I'm not like the Pharisees? That I do not approve of what they're doing. Everyone has value. And so Jesus has been making the point that the people who are crippled and blind and have physical problems and illnesses, God has accepted them. And that they're just as included in the kingdom of God and have just as a, a prominent place at Jesus' feet in, in the kingdom of God as any healthy person. He's made it clear multiple times that the sinners, the tax collectors and the adulterers and all these people who have no place in the place of the Pharisees, they have a place at Jesus' feet. They have a place in the kingdom of God. And they are just as valued and just as worthy as anyone else. He's made it clear that the Gentiles have this role, that they're just as valued and just have a prominent place in the kingdom of God as anybody else. He's done this with women that they have just as much of a role and just as prominent as his feet as the kingdom of God. And now he's making it very clear, so do children. And at this point, and there's, there's no one that he's left out. I mean, he's made it very clear that people have low social status and financial wealth have just as prominent place in the kingdom of God as anyone else. 
And at this point, there's no one that he has not repetitively made clear that their value. And then now, at this point, it doesn't matter what your social status is, your financial, your age, your gender, your physical health, mental health, or power or lack of power is. All people are equal, and all people have a place at the feet of God. And therefore, in this today modern-day world, racism, prejudice, elitism has no place in the church in any kind of a way. But now he goes even further, and not only allows them to be accepted, but then lists them up as the bar to achieve. The, 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 these are considered the lowest of the low, and, and the, they haven't achieved, and now he's lifting them up in their faith. And I think we've talked about this before too, like a child wants nothing more than to please their parents. They haven't grown up to the point to realize that their parents are flawed. They haven't seen the bigger world. The, 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 the attraction the world hasn't really come into their life yet to see how attractive that is and when they pursue it. So at their age, life is very small. Their circle is very small. They're, they're, the, the people that are in their life, they have eyes for their parents only, and, and they want to please them. They want to know that they're loved. They want to know they're accepted. And every little thought that they have and every little thing that they do, they bring to your attention for your approval. And what Jesus is saying is that's the kind of faith that we're supposed to have. We're at a kind of faith where Christ is the only thing that we have eyes for. That, and, and unlike other parents, he, will not, he does not have flaws. He will not fail us in any kind of way. There will be no growing up and seeing him for who he really is in a flawed sense. But we are to bring every thought, every emotion, and everything that we do build or accomplish to him for his approval. And we are to seek him for every moment of teaching that we have in our life. And this is the point that Christ is making. If you want to know what absolute total devotion to God looks like, then look at children and the way that they seek out their parents for help, for guidance, absolute dependency upon them because they cannot do all this stuff on their own, and for absolute need for approval in every little thing that they think, feel, and do. And this is what it means to be a follower of Christ and the kingdom of God. This is the faith that Christ is looking for in the second coming. 